Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer over at HowStuffWorks, and I love all things tech. And today, I thought I would start the story of a company that helped usher in the hype cycle for 3D printing. That company would be MakerBot. So we're going to learn the story of where MakerBot came from and what has happened to it throughout its history, which as of this recording is still less than a decade in length. It hasn't even been around for 10 years yet. But for such a young company, it has had a pretty big impact, for better and for worse. MakerBot helped bring 3D printing into a more mainstream awareness. And the story's big enough for it to span two episodes. I know it's a young company, but there's a lot that happened that has important, relevant uh, impact on multiple industries that relate to tech. And I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned from the story of MakerBot. And uh, so we're going to take two episodes to really look into it, not just the technology, but again, the story behind the people that formed it. So to talk about the company's history, it helps if we first talk about the history of 3D printing, which is also known as a type of additive manufacturing. And we call it additive because it involves building something up layer by layer rather than by taking, say, a block of material like wood or marble or something and then carving away everything that isn't whatever it is you're building. So if you're trying to build a sphere, you would end up putting down little thin layers of material in a pattern over and over with each layer successive layer overlapping a little bit on all the different edges to fill out the sphere until you got to the widest part, and then you would reverse that pattern to get back to the other end. And you would build it up layer by layer, as opposed to taking, say, a block of plastic and then cutting a sphere from that block. An early proposal for this approach came from Hideo Kodama, who worked at the Nagoya Municipal Industrial Research Institute. And Kodama wrote a report about a rapid prototyping system that could build models layer by layer. In 1984, a guy named Chuck Hull secured a patent for a procedure called stereolithography. Uh, The story behind that is actually pretty interesting, but I'm going to leave it for another podcast. Suffice it to say, he was not the only person who had this idea. He was the first person to receive a patent for it. In this approach, you could rapidly build physical models of something by using a photopolymerizing resin. So that would be a type of material that would be in liquid format, and it would go from liquid to solid after you expose it to a certain kind of light, like a a very uh, high-powered ultraviolet light. And you would use this light to start turning the liquid into solid stuff. And it worked almost like an upside-down version of today's common 3D printers. So if you have ever worked with a 3D printer, you know typically there's a platter, a a printer bed, typically heated, that uh, the print head lays plastic down on top of. Well, this approach reverses that. So you've got a platform that is touching this liquid, this this, uh, photopolymerizing resin. When you shoot UV light, right at the uh, part where the the platform and the liquid meet, it turns solid, and that adheres to the platform, and you slowly draw the platform up 
as if you're lifting it out of that liquid. And you keep adding layers by shooting the light at the next layer down of this liquid, and you build it that way. So it's actually drawing this up out of the liquid. It almost looks like you've got a submerged object that you're pulling up out of this this stuff. But in fact, you're actually converting that stuff into a solid. It's actually really cool to look at. Uh, But one of the really important things that his approach relied upon was using digital data to send instructions to the device. So this idea of creating a file format that could send, uh, that could contain the actual pattern and software that would have the instructions for the equipment to say, based upon this pattern, this is what you need to draw for every single layer and build this three-dimensional object. That approach meant that designers could relatively quickly create models of various components. You could prototype them in a matter of hours rather than having to go through a very lengthy fabrication process. And time is money, and so is effort. So bringing down the time and effort needed to create prototypes would significantly reduce the cost of developing various stuff. So you could very quickly find out which of your ideas were viable and which ones you might have to tweak or abandon by building out your components this way. Uh, But this was in a time when such technology was really only available to industries and corporations. You couldn't go out and buy a 3D printer back in those early days. It would cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars. It was not something the average person would even be aware of, let alone be able to access. This also meant that if you did have access to one of these devices, you could print replacement parts for vintage technology. So... Maybe no one's making a particular type of car part, for example. Maybe there's a a specific model of car that you own and you want to keep it in good repair, but that company no longer exists. So you can't just go out and buy a replacement part. With the right type of additive manufacturing uh, equipment, you could build a replacement part. All you would need is the digital plan to do that, whether you made that in a computer-assist design CAD program, or maybe you were able to get hold of that design from somebody, or maybe even you were able to scan an original part and make a digital copy that way. Jay Leno reportedly uses this method to maintain his collection of vintage cars. And uh, it helps that we can now print in lots of different materials, not just the plastics that you typically encounter with consumer brand uh, 3D printers. All right, so that's the the basic history of additive manufacturing from its beginning. It was the realm of the manufacturing industry. It was not something that your average person knew about. Skip ahead 20 years. Hop on over to the UK. It's lovely there. And in 2004, Dr. Adrian Bowyer of the University of Bath proposed a new project that the following year would be called RepRap, R-E-P. R-A-P. That stands for Replicating Rapid Prototyper. The goal of this project was to create a low-cost 3D printer, one that would be capable of printing most of the parts of a duplicate 3D printer. Now, this in itself wasn't exactly a new idea. There was a mathematician and a total genius named John von Neumann. Uh, I'll have to do a full episode about von Neumann in the future. He proposed a concept which he called the universal constructor. This would be a machine that would be capable of replicating itself, which is the super simple explanation. If I do a full episode about him, I'll have to go into much greater detail because it's 
a pretty phenomenal concept. Now, Bowyer's proposal was a little more modest than what von Neumann was talking about. It would be able to largely copy itself piece by piece, but unlike a true universal constructor, it would not be able to assemble the new copy. It wouldn't be able to, it it had self-copying, but not self-assembly abilities. You would still need a person to actually take all those pieces and put them together. He envisioned a rapid prototyping machine that could make most of the components needed to make a second copy. So in theory, you could make one of these things. You could then buy the raw materials you needed, meaning largely the plastic that the printer would use uh, as a printing medium and as for its parts. Then you could print all the parts for a second one and then build the second one and use that one to print all the parts for a third one and so on and so forth. And you could keep on printing more and more copies and give them to all your friends and soon everybody has one of these things. But He admitted that there were some parts like stepping motors or metal fasteners that would not really be printable in this way. So you would have to purchase those parts separately and put them together with the parts that you were able to print. However, these parts were widely available and more importantly, pretty cheap. So the most it would require is access to the digital plans to print the pieces that you needed. Uh, You would need one working printer to do the printing, obviously. If you didn't have a printer, you couldn't start the process. And you would need some know-how in the assembly process about how to wire everything together and actually physically put it together. But then you could just make copies. The project would involve not just the design of the physical printer itself, but also the software you would need to access this piece of equipment, the file formats you would need to be able to send to that equipment so that you could actually do some meaningful printing. Another very important element in RepRap, and one that's going to become super important in our MakerBot story, is that this whole idea was going to be an open source project, and still is to this day. It is an open source project. Now, that meant none of the designs for RepRap proper would be proprietary or hidden from view. It needed to be open source for two big reasons. One was that it would allow these machines to perpetuate across large groups of people. So you don't want to have any barriers to keep that from happening. If you had protected intellectual property, then that's a limitation on how quickly stuff could be spread across the entire uh, uh, population. But if you make it open source, everyone has access to it. So it removes those barriers. The other important bit is that Bowyer wanted people to have the opportunity to change that open source information, whether it was changes to the design of the hardware or to the software. And in that way, you could create improvements or alterations and and the design of the RepRep device would evolve over time as people joined the community and added their ideas to the design and implementation of this printer. People could experiment with different approaches. They might be able to improve the efficiency or the resolution of the print jobs, meaning how smooth is the finished print. If you can improve on that, that's a benefit to everybody. And as long as everyone kept everything open source and we're sharing it freely, those improvements flow back into the overall maker community and they perpetuate across it. So everyone gets to benefit from everyone's ideas. So if you design this properly, you could use a RepRap 1.0 printer 
And then when someone makes an improvement that would effectively become RepRap 1.1 or whatever, you could use your old printer to print out the new stuff, alter your old printer, and now you've got a new printer. You never have to worry about obsolescence. So instead of having to abandon a technology three or four years down the road, you can keep making incremental improvements to your device by printing stuff with the device itself. So it almost becomes self-improving. Not quite, because it does require the input of real human beings, but you get the idea. So Bowyer imagined a world where people could print whatever small parts they needed on demand, whether it was a replacement for an existing piece of technology or maybe just something totally new that they wanted. And he even envisioned a world in which people could print out their own recycling devices. And those recycling devices would consume the old, broken, or worn-out plastic parts. So instead of just accumulating more and more of these broken parts— you would actually break that down so that you could use it again. You could have a new supply of plastic that you would use for printing material. He thought of the printers as wealth machines. The cost of items would be reduced down to the cost of their raw materials and the labor associated with assembling the stuff if assembly was required. And Bowyer called the whole process Darwinian Marxism because the means of production would be in the hands of the proletariat. Without the pesky requirement of holding a bloody revolution in order to do it. Two of the three founders of MakerBot became part of the RepRap community and were working on this goal. Uh, in 2007, Zach Hoken-Smith joined the RepRap project while attending Iowa State University. Smith was quickly won over to the concept of open source hardware and would become and remain a strong advocate for that approach, so much so that he is now the executive director for RepRap Research Foundation. Then you had Adam Mayer. He attended Cornell University in the early to mid-1990s and earned a degree in computer science. He worked as a developer for a couple of companies before being invited by Smith to work on a new project that would become MakerBot. And the third co-founder, is the one who was most closely associated with the MakerBot in those early years, even though you could argue convincingly that really Smith was the heart of the project. He was the reason why it all started in the first place. But there was a third person who was sort of the face of the company, and this was Bree Pettis. More on him in just a moment. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. So I'm going to spend a little more time talking about Bree Pettis because his story is the one tied to those early years of the MakerBot even more than the other two for reasons that will later become clear. So Bree Pettis didn't come to the Maker community through being a computer scientist or an engineer. He had attended college in the early 90s and studied subjects like performing arts and psychology. After college, he lived in Prague for a while. He worked on film sets as an assistant cameraman and in other capacities. He also landed a gig for a while as an assistant in Jim Henson's Creature Shop in London, England. And he eventually returned to the States, went back to school to further his studies, and he earned a teaching certificate. So from the late 90s to the mid-2000s, he was a teacher in the Seattle public school system. 
And as a 31-year-old school teacher, you probably wouldn't have looked at Pettis and said, this guy's going to become the leader of a tech company with an incredibly disruptive goal of turning manufacturing upside down and putting that into the hands of the common consumer. He was making instructional and educational videos for his students. He was frequently incorporating puppets and other stuff in these videos. And he was putting those videos up online. And that caught the attention of a guy named Philip Tyrone, who was the senior editor of Make Magazine, the DIY maker uh, journal. Tyrone offered Pettis a job to come out to New York City and to work for Make. And that would involve him not just writing articles for Make, but also creating videos, kind of like what he had been doing in his teaching gig. And he took Tyrone up on the offer, moved out to New York City. Now, while he was in New York, Bree Pettis would meet Zach Smith, and the two of them would become two of the founding members of a hacker collective called NYC Resistor. The group would hold regular meetings, including some that were open to the public. And at those meetings, people could discuss ideas. They could work on designs for hardware or software together. They could recruit people to work on projects and generally hack technology just to figure out how it worked and how it might work better or maybe work in a way different from how the creators had originally intended, kind of that whole hacker ethos. And it was through this organization that they also met Adam Mayer. Zach Smith brought his RepRap stuff to the NYC resistor space to show it off and invite folks to help him work on the tech in an effort to realize this RepRap vision of building machines capable of printing the parts necessary to make copies of itself. Now, according to Pettis, he and Smith and Mayer got a RepRap machine, really a rep strap machine, up and running briefly before it stopped functioning entirely, but that brief success inspired them to work on creating a RepStrap kit of their own. So what is RepStrap? Well, within the RepRap community, it refers to a 3D printer, quote, cobbled together from whatever parts you can find, which will eventually allow you to print the parts for a RepRap printer, end quote. So it's another 3D printer, but this one is with all sorts of like Frankenstein type parts. And the goal is that Ultimately, you can print all the parts to just build a RepRap printer using this kind of jerry-rigged system. The name comes from a combination of RepRap and Bootstrap. The parts for a RepStrap may not all be 3D printed. Some of them could be constructed through subtractive means, like cutting materials down with like a, a laser cutter or something along those lines. Now, their work led to the design of a printer they would call the Cupcake CNC. CNC stands for Computer Numerical Control, which is a concept that applies to a whole host of different computer-controlled tools, not just 3D printers, but stuff like drills or lathes. Uh, my buddy Oz used to operate a computer-controlled router with this kind of system. He would load a design into some software, use that software to send a command to the routing table, and the software would translate the, the uh, design into a set of instructions that would be sent to this computer-controlled routing table. And a big arm with a very fast-spinning drill bit would descend and start cutting the patterns into the material below. Next thing you knew, you had yourself a cutlass made out of aluminum or some etched awards that were made out of plexiglass, all sorts of cool stuff. Well, the Cupcake CNC was something that the three were able to make in a kit form. 
So the kit would include wires, uh, a microcontroller, an acrylic build platform upon which your 3D printed objects would uh, sit as the printer was working. Uh, it included an extruder, which would convert the solid plastic into a form that could be laid down layer by layer. I'll talk more about that later in this episode. It had an XYZ positioning system and more, like a balsa uh, uh, case, essentially, that you could put together. Based on this quasi-success of them getting this thing briefly running, the three decided that they would start a company of their own and really try to bring 3D printing to the mass market, or at least a consumer market filled with makers and hobbyists who could perhaps support the business long enough for it to catch on, kind of like how the home PC business all started with kits in the 1970s. You would send off for a kit, you would get the parts, and you would put the computer together at home. That eventually led to the birth and then success of companies like Apple. So the three settled on the MakerBot name pretty quickly. They all thought, well, this would let you make stuff. It's part of the Maker community. It is more or less kind of a robot because it will automatically carry out the instructions you send to it. And they thought, well, there's no way that name is available. It's too good of a name. But they did some research and found that, as far as they could tell, no one had claim to it. So they said, excellent, we're going to go with that. In January 2009, the three launched this company with the help of $75,000 of seed money. $25,000 of that came from Adrian Bowyer himself, the man who proposed the RepRap project five years earlier. And like I said, their first product was the Cupcake CNC. And you would buy that in kit form, or if you lack the patience, but you happen to have a whole lot more money, you could buy it fully assembled. If you buy it as a kit, it would set you back $750, a princely sum in its own right. But if you wanted someone else to put the thing together and save you some time and remove the possibility that maybe you'd wire it up incorrectly, then you're looking at $2,500 to buy one fully assembled. So what was up with the name Cupcake? Well, as Adam Mayer would explain to Google in 2009, there's a presentation that's up online. You can actually watch the whole thing if you like. The Cupcake device was meant to be a 3D positioning tool that could do more than just act as a 3D printer. That was the first implementation they envisioned for it, but they thought, well, this is really a device where you can have two different components and they quote-unquote know where they are in orientation with relation to each other, including distance and, um, you know, positioning. And then you could use that for all sorts of stuff, not just 3D printing. And they created a design, or proposed a design at least, that would uh, use frosting as a stuff to pipe out onto a surface, like on a cupcake. So that's where they got the name Cupcake CNC, because they thought, well, this could really let you create very intricate designs and send them to the machine, and then they would carry out the designs automatically, and your cupcakes would be made with robotic precision, or at least frosted with robotic precision. While the team had been working on the design for the cupcake for a while, they didn't have an actual first-generation cupcake CNC ready to go working until March of 2009. Bree was scheduled to travel to Austin, Texas for South by Southwest with the goal of showing off the MakerBot to people there. He didn't have a ticket. He was just going to show them the printer in bars around Austin, Texas. And from my experience, the couple times I've been to South by Southwest— that seems to be the kind of location where most of the actual action of South by Southwest really takes place. It's in the after hours in the various restaurants and bars around Austin, Texas. 
So he uh, shot a quick video of the team's early cupcake CNC printing out an object in March 2009, then immediately went to South by Southwest, where he would show off this printer in bars, and he printed out shot glasses as a demonstration. Uh, Apparently, he had this fascination with shot glasses in general, and so that was kind of his go-to demo. After South by Southwest, the team actually created an online storefront so people could purchase the printers. This was the first time they were actually offering them up for sale. They had the idea of $750 for a kit. They knew they would charge $2,500 for a fully assembled one, and now they were finally ready to say, all right, if you want one, put in the order. They had put together 20 kits and boxed them up, so they were ready to go. And they thought that it would probably take a couple of months to sell out of that initial inventory because the idea was still pretty new, especially outside of the tight community of makers who were familiar with the RepRap project. But instead, they actually sold out of their kits in two weeks. At that point, MakerBot was taking up space in the office of an entrepreneur named Jake Lodwick. Lodwick had co-founded the online video platform Vimeo. Before that, he had worked as a web developer for College Humor in its early days. He's another interesting person in business and tech, and I'll probably have to do a full episode about him in the future as well. But as MakerBot was getting bigger, they were taking up more and more space in Lodwick's office. And he eventually told his team that once his lease was up, he was not planning on renewing. He was going to give up the space. And that meant the young company needed to secure space of their own for realsies. So they ended up leasing a 5,000-square-foot office space in Brooklyn, New York. They were convinced that this would give them plenty of room to grow. But within two months, they had pretty much filled it up with capacity. Uh, Things were really exciting for the fledgling company at this time. And I would have my first experience with MakerBot not long after this stuff was going on. I'll talk more about that in just a second. But first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Not only did the MakerBot guys move into a new space, they made their first hire to help handle incoming orders. So now there's the three of them plus an employee. Exciting. The maker community appeared to be eager to get hold of the tech that would allow them to actually explore the possibility of making the RepRap dream a reality, something where they would be able to print all sorts of different parts, not just, you know, tchotchkes, but useful stuff. Part of that meant adhering to those principles of the open source philosophy. The cupcake was a true piece of open source hardware. The software you'd need to run it was also open source. So the community could scour over the design of both and contribute fixes or improvements. They were acting as quality assurance. They were acting as research and development. Uh, This was incredibly valuable for MakerBot. Not only was it creating a community of loyal customers. It was also doing a lot of work that MakerBot would have had to do on its own if it had been proprietary technology from the from the get-go. They would have had to have their own teams QA stuff, make sure everything's working properly. If something's not working properly, then they would have to go through the whole process of trying to fix the problem, you know, find a workaround or a solution. Uh, they would also be looking at their own ways to improve the technology. But by releasing it in this open source format, Their users became those people. It was almost like the users were an employee by extension and an employee of incredible skill because it came with all the ideas of all the different people in that community. It was incredibly powerful. 
And apparently it was just really encouraging to participate in this community. People who bought a Cupcake CNC felt like they were part of something big and they had some sense of ownership there because their input was valued. They were all working together to change the world. It was kind of this almost utopian sort of perspective. As the orders were coming in, the company was making plans to take another step into the consumer marketplace. And that would involve traveling out to Las Vegas, Nevada for the 2010 CES trade show. And that's where I saw a MakerBot cupcake CNC for the first time as it slowly printed out a special plastic coin that I still have somewhere. The team also talked about how they hoped to create a 3D scanner in the future to let people convert a three-dimensional scan of a physical object into the data necessary to print out a replica of that object. That would be a huge jump forward because it would mean you wouldn't have to plot out all the points yourself in a CAD program or hope that someone else could do it. With a good scanner, you could get a a full three-dimensional scan of something like a replacement part, and then you would have that information forever. So it's not like you would scan it once and then you just print it once. You scan it once and you've got it. And whenever you need another one, you just print another one. So it was like you suddenly got access to a never-ending supply of all these different parts if you could just scan them in and if you had the raw materials to print out another one. So you started to see the possibility of that vision coming true. But at this point, they didn't have the scanner. That would come later, but they didn't have it uh, at this early stage. But they did say that was something they were interested in developing. Part of the disruption that 3D printers were uh, all about was a, a related project that Zach Smith had worked on back when the three co-founders were still getting ready to launch MakerBot as a company. So this was late 2008. This was a website called Thingiverse. And the website is kind of a, a companion piece to MakerBot. It acts as a repository for user-generated digital design files. So at Thingiverse, designers could upload their design files for other people to use or even to alter in any way that they liked. So if you created a collection of files for, say, 3D-printed chess pieces, you could upload them all as files to Thingiverse. And someone else could download those and print out the chess pieces that you designed. And the designs all followed the licensing strategy of either the GNU General Public License or the Creative Commons License. And those agreements typically allow people to use a piece of intellectual property with uh, with very few limitations. Uh, of course, it all depends upon the specific type of license. These licenses are not uh, all just one approach. There are multiple different pathways you can take with them. But with some of those licenses, you can actually allow folks to not just take your work, but make derivative or altered works based off of what you've already done. So that means someone could download those chess pieces you designed, for example, and then they create a customized version of every piece that uses your models as a starting point. Or then after that, they might upload their own altered designs. They can sit right alongside your originals, and someone else could download either one or both and make changes to either or both. So one of the categories that got a lot of action on Thingiverse early on had to do with the printers themselves. So users were designing parts that could upgrade the basic cupcake CNC design. So it was possible to go out and buy a cupcake CNC kit, spend the 80 hours or so it would take to put it together, 
get some plastic filament as your printing material, and then print out a printer upgrade using the original version of the printer. Then you could take it apart, put the upgrade into your new and improved printer, and start up again. And that was, again, one of the most powerful parts of having this community, was having people who are actively working to improve the product. MakerBot paid attention to those designs and would even incorporate some of them in the official future machines it would produce. And often uh, it would include attribution. So the people who had created the designs would get an attribution in future uh, versions of the actual products. So this was really the honeymoon phase for MakerBot. The maker community was enthusiastically embracing the company. Tech news outlets were really getting excited about covering it, but there were some big changes lurking on the horizon, and they would affect everything. So before I end this episode, before I conclude on this part, I figured it would be good to give just kind of a quick high-level rundown on how these printers work in general. And I'll be chatting about some other models in the upcoming episodes, but they all work on a similar principle in the MakerBot family. So essentially, it all begins with that digital 3D model of whatever it is you're going to print. That model serves as the set of instructions for the printer. The printer software takes the model and essentially slices it into very thin layers from the bottom up. Uh, The bottom in this case being the side of the object that will be in contact with the building platform. It's not necessarily the bottom of the object itself because you could print an object on its side or even upside down. So top and bottom in this case refer to whichever side is making contact with the, uh, the base, the printing platform, that's the bottom. These instructions get sent to the printer, which can interpret the instructions as a set of plot points where it's going to lay down the plastic in a very thin layer. The type of plastic falls into a category called thermoplastic. And as the name suggests, with thermo, heat has an important part to play here. Thermoplastics are materials that soften as they get hotter and they harden as they cool down. So if you heat them up to a hot enough temperature, they'll actually, they'll melt. So a reel of thermoplastic filament would serve as the raw material for the printer. The type of plastic, the two most common types of thermoplastics that you'll find for consumer 3D printers would be ABS, which is oil-based, and it's the same sort of plastic that Lego bricks are made out of, and PLA, which is a biodegradable organic plastic. It's made from starchy byproducts. MakerBot tends to focus on both. Uh, They tended to focus earlier on ABS over PLA, but that would change over the course of the life of MakerBot as well. ABS tends to make a harder plastic than PLA once it sets, but it's also got an amorphous melting point. ABS does. That means that you can't be totally certain at which temperature the stuff is actually going to melt. It depends heavily upon the batch of plastic you have. So typically, 3D printers will heat up extruders to around 230 degrees Celsius. But depending upon the filament, you might need anything between 210 degrees Celsius to 240 degrees Celsius to get the ideal uh, temperature, to to get the consistency, the the melting that you will need to, to print properly. In addition... ABS can warp as you print if it happens to to cool down too much during the printing process. So for that reason, if you print an ABS, you need a heated bed or heated platform to keep the plastic at a high enough temperature so it holds its shape through the entire printing process. But you also don't want the bed to be so hot 
that it ends up making the the plastic gooey. Like it, it never has a chance to actually cool enough to start hardening and it'll warp as the print head moves around or as the object becomes too heavy. PLA is in general safer to use than ABS. It, it puts out fewer fumes at any rate. It also has a lower melting point, so you don't have to operate the printer at such a high temperature at the extruders. And it cools into a glossy, smooth appearance. It's a little more aesthetically pleasing than ABS typically is after printing. The printing bed doesn't necessarily have to be heated, though the resources I'm familiar with suggest you should probably still use a heated print bed. You just don't need it as hot as you would with ABS. So in other words, you might need a heated print bed uh, that's at 60 degrees Celsius for PLA versus 80 degrees Celsius for ABS. PLA has greater tensile strength than ABS, but ABS typically withstands wear and tear better and, and will uh, in, withstand impact better. If you drop something that's been printed in ABS plastic, it tends to just kind of bounce and it's typically kind of fine. Uh, PLA material can be a bit more brittle. It could actually shatter depending upon what it is and how hard it hits the ground. Whether it's PLA or ABS, there's a motor that's in a 3D printer that pulls this filament, this, this wire-like uh, uh, construction of plastic, into the printer's extruder. The extruder is essentially a, a, a superheated nozzle, or not superheated, but at least a very hot nozzle. It's heated to a precise temperature, like that 230 degrees Celsius for ABS, for example, and that's in order to melt this filament. And the extruder prints this molten plastic on the heated print bed. Uh, the motor keeps it moving, so the filament keeps adding pressure, thus pushing the liquid plastic through the end of the nozzle, and the process continues until you finish the print job. Uh, either the extruder will move around the print bed or the print bed will move underneath the extruder. It depends upon the design of the printer. In either case, these movements correspond with the digital 3D model for the object that you're sending to the printer in the first place, and the printer lays down the first of many layers of molten plastic. The printer repeats that process layer by layer, laying down molten plastic to sit on top of and bind to the lower layer of plastic. The printer is essentially creating multiple two-dimensional images, just stacks of two-dimensional images, over and over again until they add up to a full three-dimensional printed object. The Cupcake CNC could print an object up to 100 millimeters long, 100 millimeters wide, and 130 millimeters tall. So that translates to 4 inches by 4 inches by 5 inches, more or less. But the Cupcake CNC was just the beginning. And while this company was rapidly gaining fans in the maker community, things were bound to change pretty dramatically in the next couple of years. I'll explain more in part two of this episode, but that concludes this part. So I hope you guys are enjoying the story of MakerBot so far. Our next episode will have a lot of controversy and tragedy in it, at least from a kind of a high-level view. Uh, very interesting stuff. If you guys have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, tell you what, go to our website. It's techstuffpodcast.com. You can check out the links there. You can get in contact with me. Let me know what you would like me to cover in future episodes. You can also pop on over to our store over at tpublic.com slash techstuff and look at the merchandise there. And not just look at it, you know, buy something if you like it. Every purchase you make goes to help the show. We greatly appreciate it. And we've got some fun designs on there and we've got new ones coming all the time. So go check it out. And 
I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 